The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host, and I have with me on the podcast today Dr. George Grant to discuss a recent publication of his. Dr. Grant, thank you for joining me. Oh, it is always my pleasure. Good to talk with you this morning. Good to talk with you too. For the remainder of the podcast, I will be referring to Dr. Grant as George. No offense intended to anyone. No, 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 no. That's that's that is uh, that is my requirement. <laughs> <laughs> George is senior pastor of Parish Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee. He's the founder of New College Franklin, president of the Kings Meadow Study Center, and founder of Franklin Classical School. He is a prolific author and accomplished Christian educator, and I am privileged to know him as a good friend. Today we will be discussing a recently released discipleship tool which George has put together called Keystones, subtitled Make Disciples, published last year by Standfast Books. According to one esteemed endorser, following the historic church's devotion to scripture, we can walk alongside Chalmers and Grant to learn anew the Father's love for us, the Son's grace to us, and the Spirit's sanctifying work in us. End quote. I wonder who wrote that. <laughs> An esteemed, esteemed <laughs> reviewer. Yeah. Well, I think, I think our listeners have figured that one out. In any case, uh, we're going to focus uh, or frame our discussion, rather, relating to the Keystones in three general areas of focus. The what, the why, and the how. Not necessarily in that order at all times, but those are the questions we're going to be posing, and I'll be posing to you, George, as we go through this. Now, one thing I, I really sincerely do greatly appreciate about the Keystone's method of Bible study, and particularly how you've presented it here, is that it is grounded in a rich tradition going back centuries into church history. Can you speak to the formative historical influences that lie behind the methodology? The methodology is rooted in, though it's not entirely uh, true to, something called the Lexio Divina. Now, Lexio Divina was a medieval approach to the scriptures that we might summarize as observation, interpretation, application, and supplication. Uh, the Lexio Divina can be traced, or at least portions of it, all the way back to uh, the church in Antioch, which was known as uh, one of the two primary schools of interpretation in the early church, the Antiochian school and the Alexandrian school. So we're talking uh, way back in the patriarchal period. The Antiochian school really took seriously the literal meaning of Scripture and its application. And so as uh, generations of Antiochian pastors were trained, they were taught to look at the details of the text, lexio or observation, and then from there begin to make interpretations, applications, but also to pray through the text so that the, the text would come alive spiritually and so that it wouldn't just be an academic exercise or a doctrinal exercise, it would become a genuine devotional exercise. Well, that, that method of lexio, meditatio, contemplatio, and oratio 
became kind of a standard for, uh, at first, uh, the evangelistic movement that moved out from uh, the Eastern Mediterranean throughout uh, Europe and uh, North Africa and beyond. But, but then it was kind of rooted in the Benedictine tradition uh, of uh, monasticism. And that's probably where Lexio Divina starts to pick up some of its um, peculiar mystical tendencies, uh, which have persisted to this day. Uh, some of the less helpful aspects of the tradition. But there was always this, this sense, we see it in Calvin, we see it in Luther, we see it in Knox, that the disciplines of reading the Scripture, thinking through what the text is actually saying, then finding ways to live it out and to pray it out, but was uh, you know kind of a cornerstone of of the way that uh, historical uh, interpretation was done. So hermeneutics, uh, biblical hermeneutics, was rooted in this observation, interpretation, application, uh, supplication sort of structure. But uh, along comes Thomas Chalmers in the nineteenth century. He was converted after he had already been a pastor for eight years. He was a part of that old moderate Scottish tradition of moralism. And he suddenly came to realize that he knew a lot about the Bible, but he didn't really know the Bible. He, he realized that he had missed this entire component. So, he began to read the Bible voraciously, looking for the gospel. Where is grace in this passage? And it struck him that he could take that old, old tradition of Lexio Divina and bring to it the same reforming influences that had now uh, renovated his own heart with grace and it would transform the way he studied the Bible. But there was another aspect to Chalmers' experience that, that really shaped him and his later disciples, and that was his sense that he had lost a lot of time, a lot of time in really knowing the gospel and applying the gospel. And the result was that he knew Bible stories as moralism, but he, he didn't know the, the overarching arguments, the outlines of books. He, he, he didn't have the 40,000-foot view uh, because he had turned everything into a little Sunday school lesson. So he determined to try and identify a key verse or a couple of verses in every chapter of the New Testament that he called the keystone. And then he would memorize that passage. So he's added, you know, the spiritual discipline of Scripture memory to this, this old tradition, along with a, a search for the gospel. And so the, the result was is that by memorizing just 16 verses— he could have the entire outline of the book of Romans, the arc of its argument, the essence of the systematic theology. He, he would have 
you know, the the real meat and potatoes. Uh, six verses for the book of Ephesians. And by by doing that, he started to realize that the Bible was coming alive to him. So he used that as the method that he discipled the young men under his care, which eventually Chalmers became this incredible influence. Uh, Guys like the Bonar brothers and Robert Murray McShane were disciples who learned how to read and study the Bible from Chalmers using this, what he called the Keystone Method. Now, I know you you are unashamed in identifying and highlighting Thomas Chalmers as one of your great heroes in the in church history and has that has that affection for Chalmers and admiration of him fueled your desire to bring this particular discipleship method this bible study method into print in the 21st century no doubt that that is a part of you know my motivation i i, I have loved Chalmers for a long time i I do have a lot of heroes, you know. I, I can go back to, uh, you know, Jan Amos Comenius and uh, Gerhard Grota and uh, obviously Calvin and Knox and uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was my first discipler when I was a brand new Christian. I read everything I could get my hands on of Spurgeon. I, you know, I have learned so much from Kuiper and Bavink. But there was something about Chalmers that always piqued my interest, even before I made a serious study of him. And and that was that he made decisions all throughout his ministry to focus on discipling a cadre of faithful men who would then go out and change the world. Chalmers was hugely influential in launching the modern missions movement, the modern Bible society movement. He was, you know, a partner with Wilberforce in the fight against the slave trade. He was a a remarkable reformer and um, unstintingly courageous at every turn, oftentimes to the detriment of his, his own prestige and reputation. And I've, I, I just always loved that. But there was always this question in my mind, which was, why does it seem like all of the men that Chalmers shaped and discipled, why is it that many of them are better known than he is? You know, why are we quicker to know something about Robert Murray McShane or about, you know, Andrew or Horatius Bonar than we are about Chalmers? And there are a lot of reasons, I think. I think the biggest reason is, is that he poured himself into their lives so that they could stand on his shoulders, see further, reach higher than he ever did. And that, I think, is the kind of leader that we ought to emulate. Absolutely. That's exactly right and extremely well put. Now, focusing on the keystones themselves, right now you have three volumes that have been put into print in paperback and hardback. The hardback is 
kind of like a moleskin journal, uh, really right. beautifully bound and, 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 and just a delight to engage with. And then the paperbacks are obviously a bit more of the budget option, but make this material accessible. And looking at these three volumes, why don't you tell our listeners what they're covering? What biblical materials do these initial three volumes uh, currently in print actually go over? Well, there are two pages for every chapter of the New Testament. So uh, when when you're journaling, <clears throat> you, have, uh, you have two pages in front of you. Uh, for instance, right now I'm holding open uh, volume two to Ephesians chapter one. And so there are two, two pages here for Ephesians chapter one. And so volume one covers the gospels. Uh, volume two is Acts and the Pauline epistles. And then volume three is the rest of the New Testament. Each volume includes uh, uh, for each chapter a, um, a, a quotation from Chalmers about that chapter. It includes the keystone verse uh, that uh, that is you know sort of the summary or the key verse for that chapter uh, in both the ESV and the King James version, and then you have the six sections of reflection and response that uh, that kind of walk you through this Keystone's methodology. You've got the observation, interpretation, the supplication, uh, the application, and, and then contextualization, which is where's the gospel in this? Where are the doctrines of grace? And then finally, inscripturation or, or the scripture memory section. So you work your way through that one of the methods that uh, that we have is a reading plan where you spend an entire week on the chapter. So when you uh, come to say Ephesians chapter one, you every morning you read the entire chapter and then you do one of the sections, uh, and you write down whatever it is you see, whatever it is that you're observing, and by the end of the week. Uh, you will have memorized the passage, uh, the Keystone verse, because you're working on that all week long, uh, and you will have really dug deep into uh, the passage itself. I've used this methodology uh, as I've discipled young men uh, over the course of the past several years, and uh, I'm so delighted to now have the tools in my hands to kind of give uh, bones to to that that structure, uh, but I've also had the chance to teach this overseas, uh, in um, in the context of of uh, Iraqi refugees living in a refugee camp, uh, Yazidis, uh, Kurds. I've uh, taught it in Alexandria, Egypt. I've uh, had the opportunity to teach older men, younger men. We've used it in our church for Sunday school. It's a primary discipling tool that many of our ladies are using in their ladies' Bible study. So in a lot of different contexts, I've, I've seen this approach really powerfully work. It's not inductive Bible study. It includes deductive aspects to it, so it's uh, it's it, it really is 
uh, something that has helped shape my own uh, study of the Word of God. It's changed the way I preach. It's been incredibly rich. You know, I've been going through Matthew's Gospel using this method as a supplement to my daily reading through the Bible. Uh, I'm, I'm think I'm using yeah I'm using the McShane Bible reading uh, oh, so schedule good. this year. So I've been through the New Testament once already, and I'm about halfway through the Old Testament. And I'm going through the New Testament again. And I also read through Proverbs every month. And I read through the Westminster Standards every month. And that's that's because I find them to be devotional, but also I'm I'm playing the long game in terms of preparing for ordination exams on that. So front. you read the all of the standards every, every month? I, I larger do. and shorter catechism as well? Exactly, but I do not read through all the proof texts. Oh, okay. Every single month. That yeah. I, I don't <laughs> that think I'd be, be able to maintain that. That would be that. overwhelming. Yeah, that yeah. would that would be a bit Wild, because on average, I'm hitting seven larger catechism questions and answers, four shorter catechism questions and answers, and a chapter in the confession on average per day. And it's really not that bad. But anyway, that's if anyone Are wants you like my plan me for that. In, in the <laughs> sense that when you read the larger catechism, you're just undone. Yes, especially. I, I am, I'm, I'm completely undone yeah. every time I read the, through the larger catechism. And I think, yep. oh, if there were no gospel, there is no hope at all for any of yep. us. But yep. because of the gospel, what a glorious hope we all have. I am I am continually thankful that they divided both catechisms with what we know about God, what we are to believe about him, which covers the gospel, covers the person and work of Christ, and then the second half where it gets into all the nitty-gritty of the law and what, what's demanded of us and demanded of all men, because whenever I read through that, the teaching on the Ten Commandments, I just, I just consider myself, as I should, completely unworthy of any kind of favor or grace from God. But then I'm reminded of what I'd already been told about who Jesus right. Christ is, who God the Father is, and the nature of salvation not being dependent on me, but being dependent on Him and, and His eternal decree Amen. Uh, and and what, a, what a glorious message that is. Um, and then the ending with prayer. I think that that was a very good thing that the catechisms did, and a historically grounded thing, because that brings us back home to we're calling out to a God who loves us. Amen. Um, well, I wasn't expecting that discussion of the catechism, but that was great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. one, one thing that I was curious about, I know how you combed through just the volumes of Chalmers's literary output and theological output and, and even some journals and writings by some of his students to determine which verse he considered to be the keystone for each chapter, because he didn't map all this out himself in one place, correct? Well, you know, the very first year that he did it, he mapped out most of the New Testament. Uh, and but But he refined it over the course of the rest of his life for the next 30 years. And so a part of my task was to determine if say in his, um, his Sunday, uh, his Sabbath readings, um, or if in his uh, commentaries or whatever, he zeroed in on a different verse. And then there were some gaps where I had to go and uh, look and see you know, in the memoirs of various students, as they would talk about uh, Chalmers and his influence on them, they would oftentimes mention uh, some of the keystones. And that so I, it, it was a bit of a, 
uh, of a scavenger hunt. But I, I did have that base that uh, that William Hanna, his son-in-law, uh, who wrote his uh, his biography, um, this beautiful six-volume biography, uh, he does have uh, about three-fourths of the New Testament listed that very first year that, uh, that, that Chalmers worked this method. And now what criteria, or just criterium, if it was just one thing, did you use to pick out the quotation? Uh, did was it always obvious? Oh, that's that's the quotation I need for this chapter. Or did you have to wrestle with Chalmers a little bit to figure out what would be the best thing to include from his writing? Yeah, most of those quotations come from his Sabbath readings, and uh, so what I which his Sabbath readings is a rich, rich tradition in the in the Scottish Church that uh, before the evening worship service, uh, a group of people would gather at the pastor's house, usually at the manse, uh, and they would uh, they, they would read a single chapter of the New Testament and then pray through it. And so the Sabbath readings of, of Chalmers, which have been published, the, those are his prayers on a particular passage. And so they're, they're incredibly applicable to this. So oftentimes I would select uh, something from that. It wasn't always obvious, and because of the peculiarities of Chalmers' prose, this is one of the reasons why Chalmers is not as well known as some of his contemporaries. Uh, even though he had vastly more influence, he had this uh, kind of peculiar pre-Victorian uh, Scottish dialect that is very, very unfamiliar to us. And so sometimes I would break up sentences just so that they could be a little bit more understandable. And uh, sometimes I would leave out parenthetical phrases because I wanted, I wanted the quotations to get to the heart of that keystone idea. So what you've done here, and, and this, is, this is enlightening to me, I didn't realize all those, all of those details, even having read through the preface and, and, and the introduction, which you've included in the materials, but you've really provided a critical resource. And what I mean by that is not like critical theory or anything goofy, but you know, you get those Norton, uh, critical editions of say the Odyssey or the Iliad or Canterbury tales where you have a uh, significant annotation or a critical, you know, bringing together uh, various disparate editions of a work to produce the most uh, likely to be original thing or, or, you know, just obviously editorial input that, that would right. go beyond merely cutting and pasting and, and rearranging. I mean, what you've done is, is really a, a thoughtful um, curation that maybe that's the best word of it of Chalmers's uh, Keystone's method and his, uh, and his discipleship method here. Well, and one of the things that I was aiming at was to make it as much alive as uh, the way that Chalmers used it with his with his students. He almost never sat across a table with his students. 
Uh, this he walked with them. They would walk around St. Andrews in the streets of St. Andrews, and they'd be very animated in their conversation, and they would wrestle with the scriptures, and they would walk through this passage. Um, so they would have their New Testament in their hand, and uh, the, the, Andrew Bonar says the most frequent question that Chalmers uh, would give to his students as they were talking through a passage of scripture was, what else do you see, my son? What else do you see, my son? So you can imagine, you know, that, that sort of give and take conversation. I wanted to try and capture as best I could that, that process on the page. And so that's why the quotation and uh, that's why the arrangement there and uh, the reading plans that, that we've put together. I love that. That is that is fantastic. And as you go through it, writing into the book myself, as I've been going through Matthew, I know I've seen some of your journals, George, and I, I know it's the same deal. You end up really living in, in the text and not just in a wooden method, but interacting with the quotation, interacting with the Keystones verse and, and, and writing all over the page, not just on the lines to, right. to make that. Well, and that's really important to turn this into a tool that really is useful for you. Uh, I do outlining uh, in the um, in, in the white space that's kind of around the quotations. I uh, look for uh, repeated words uh, and phrases. I have cross references, and I throw all of that onto the page. Uh, if there is particular imagery that's picked up, you know, say from uh, in the book of Hebrews, there's all of this uh, Leviticus imagery. And uh, so in the book of Hebrews, I've got all of these Leviticus notations all over the page. And I've really encouraged people. We, we, have, a, we have a Facebook group uh, for users of, of the Keystones. And I really encourage them to share their hacks, share their insights and ways that they're using all of that extra white space to turn these journals into a functional tool that they'll be able to return to over and over again over the course of their Christian lives. Yes, and that community has been helpful, and um, and it, it's it's good because it's focused. It doesn't doesn't. Uh, disintegrate into kind of pointless conversation because it really is concerned with this particular method of Bible study. And you can only get invited to it if you've purchased the books or received the books somehow. And, um, and, and the conversation there is fruitful and edifying and God honoring, which has been an encouragement to me there in the Standfast community. And I hope you've been getting good feedback from other people about it as well. Yeah, it's, it's been really uh, fun. We've done zero advertising. Uh, we have not attempted to, to turn this into a publishing juggernaut. Uh, this is not the prayer of Jabez. Uh, <laughs> the, the whole point of this is really just to put tools in the hands of pastors and um, Sunday school teachers and uh, others to, uh, to begin to disciple others and to grow them in Jesus. You know, you have a you you hit the high points of actually going, sitting down, cracking open keystones alongside of our Bibles, and going through those two phases of of reflection and response, and the six steps which you give as well. And and so, and I've heard you on other episodes get down into the nitty gritty and the weeds on that. And so, I don't think we necessarily need to do that again. 
Um, I think you've given us a good taste of it, and and I want to point our listeners to where they can get a preview of it themselves. We'll do that at the end of the episode. But, sure. But focusing on, and one of the primary concerns of this podcast is pastoral care and, and practice, um, focusing on your role as a pastor there, even just at parish, uh, how have you been using the Keystones method in the life of your church? You mentioned the women's group using it. You've mentioned uh, how, that you have been using it in different places, but how exactly have, uh, what, what does that look like? When I was a young uh, pastor, one of my great disciples, friends, and influencers was Jay Adams. And Jay uh, taught me early on that uh, one of the most effective things that you can do in counseling uh, and in discipleship is to make sure that um, you have hot response, not cold response, meaning give homework. So before I schedule a follow-up counseling appointment, I, I will have always uh, given uh, homework that has to be done before we even schedule the next uh, counseling appointment. Well, I do the same thing in discipleship. So one of the things that I do is I meet with a number of groups of, uh, of uh, young men and older men, and uh, what, what, what I do is I say, okay, next week we're going to make our way through Galatians chapter 2. And uh, so what Keystones helps me with is I can hand them this journal and they, they have a clear path. They're not just going to read Galatians chapter 2. They're going to wrestle with everything that's there in Galatians chapter 2. And they're going to come having memorized Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So when when we meet together, we've, we've got a clear outline of stuff that we can talk through. We don't have to have... Um, you know, a, a lot of chit chat and in the last five minutes get to what what it is that we're really after. We've got a real structure. So one of the ways that I'm using this is just in my basic discipleship methodology. I've got, it's not, not so much a curriculum, but I've got a, a way for us to dig into the Bible together that, that gives real um, direction and structure to our conversation. That hits the point that really attracts me to the method that, and I've described it to the people in my church and introducing it recently to them, that it's not so structured as to be suffocating and, and even inane, like some Bible right. studies tend to be, but it's not so free form as to be really difficult to stay on top of or to keep motivated with. And it, it, it hits right. that nice middle ground. It's just right. Provides just enough structure to keep me on track and motivated, but just enough liberty uh, that I can really engage with the text without feeling suffocated. I just, I wanted to insert that there. Yeah. You know, and I think that it works best in community, you know, where, where there's, uh, we, we have several small groups now in our church of guys who just decided, you know, let's, that we, we, 
we, we want to study the Bible together, so let's meet at Chick-fil-A, you know, on uh, on Tuesday at lunchtime, and we're just gonna we're just gonna walk through a chapter a week. And they're doing it in conversation. Oh, did I didn't notice that? I see now. He says he asked that same question three times in the text. Oh, that's great. That helps make the whole thing make sense. And suddenly it comes alive. And then as you're sharing how you've prayed through the text, uh, that that really then begins to open up life on life, and real community begins to emerge at that point. There, there, a second way that we have used this at our church is uh, we have taught it in Sunday school classes as a methodology. So, for instance, I did uh, the book of Colossians, uh, I've done the book of Ephesians, where e- each week I tell everybody, okay, ne- you know, next week we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, so, you know, have have your notebooks and have all the questions filled out, and then the, the class itself is just talking through it. And, you know, I love teaching in a kind of Socratic fashion uh, where people are, you know, bouncing ideas back and forth. Q&A is oftentimes the most fruitful part of a class like that. And again, you're building community, you're getting people excited, they're able to contribute, their insights really matter. Uh, they'll they'll say, oh, I, I, I noticed that the, the word so is in the passage nine times. <laughs> you know, when God's repeating himself, that's pretty significant. You should pay attention. So th- those kind of details work great in a class discussion. I've used it on the mission field. I mentioned that. Uh, one of the things that I have discovered is uh, we, we have a seminary that, uh, that uh, Dominic Aquila uh, has uh, has started in Alexandria, Egypt. And e- Egypt has this really, really rich Presbyterian heritage uh, that most people uh, aren't aware of. And so we've got this seminary. So we've got really motivated students who are planning to plant churches. Uh, but because of the peculiarities of both the traditional culture and the smothering influence of Sharia uh, in a Muslim country. These are guys who know a lot of doctrine, but they don't know the Bible. So teaching this methodology to these really bright future pastors is an incredibly rich enterprise, and they're learning the Bible in uh, in you know side by side with their systematic theology and their homiletics courses and all of that that is that is making a huge difference but then you know just to the north of where we're teaching those seminary students we we've got this really rich ministry in Iraq and in particular with the Kurds and the Yazidis who have been just decimated in recent years by ISIS And they are so hungry for the Word of God, but they have no context. 
They know nothing. They don't know what a cross-reference system is. They don't know how to find a verse. If you say Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 3, they would have a really hard time finding it. And so what, what I have found is that this methodology is a perfect way to give structure that, uh, that enables that student who knows nothing to have confidence that they can make their way through the text, or that student who has a lot of knowledge but d- doesn't necessarily have uh, the arc of, the, of biblical theology in their mind, it, it enables them to finally see it. So uh, it, it has all of these rich applications. I commend this resource to our listeners. I've been using it just an in individual Bible study all by myself, and it's been extremely helpful to me. And I can only imagine that with greater degree of accountability in a group setting, how, how helpful it would be. And the additional insights from earnest brothers who as well are motivated to dig into the word and to mine the riches of God's wisdom contained therein. And, um, uh, one thing I, I have been wondering, George, now that I have these three volumes and I intend to go through them either by myself or with others and probably multiple times in my pastoral career, I, I intend to use this, this tool. Uh, did Chalmers identify Keystone memory verses for the Old Testament? Portions of the Old Testament. Unfortunately, he did not, um, as far as we know, do all of the Old Testament. But you will. <laughs> <laughs> but um, th- there are and there, there are huge gaps in all of the Old Testament. Yeah. But there is sufficient material for me to. Uh, I am currently working on the Psalms, so there will be three volumes uh, of of the Psalms. Wow. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to that. I think, I'm not positive, but I think we're going to be able to do all of the rest of wisdom literature, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, there are huge gaps in Ecclesiastes, but there were some gaps in the New Testament that I just filled in. And so it's not all Chalmers. Uh, so I, I think that the methodology is valuable enough, and I'm trying to make it contemporary enough that it can be really usable for the 21st century church. From my perspective, so far, so good. And I think that it's not just contemporary. I think it will have lasting value. And, um, you know, on one hand, we wish Chalmers had done this particular uh, work of putting it all together in his own lifetime. But on the other hand, he has left enough behind for, for you to take up the project and to provide something of lasting value to the church that will outlive you and probably outlive me and, uh, and the churches we serve, the particular congregations, and, and be a, a real generational resource. At least that's my hope and my expectation. Amen, mine as well. Yeah. Um, so winding down here, where can listeners go for more information about the Keystones or even to order the Keystones if they're interested in them? There, there are a lot of resources, including intros and samples and um, videos, uh, all on georgegrant.net. And uh, books can be ordered from there as well. Uh, the uh, the paperbacks can be ordered on Amazon. I you know I probably will be slapped down by the publisher for saying this, 
But I just don't even think that the paperbacks are worth it, even even at the lower price. I the the paperbacks came out first, and I used the the paperback when when I went to Iraq the last time. We distributed paperbacks, and all, everything is in the paperback. But when the hardbacks came out, I actually threw all of my paperbacks away. <laughs> I, I transferred some of the notes. I had been working through the Gospel of Matthew. I transferred them into my hardback. And uh, it's just so much more usable and functional, I think. Uh, they lay flat open. They, the, the paper is a better quality paper. And aesthetically, it's so much nicer. No, I wasn't going to say this, but I did the same thing because <laughs> I got the paperbacks myself and then I visited with you and you and you gifted me the hardbacks because I gave that endorsement, I guess, uh, or just because I'm your friend. But and you're it, just because you're my friend. <laughs> and uh, and so I went home and I was like, man, this is so much better than the paperback. And I transferred my notes out. I still have my paperback. I'm showing them in the video now for our listeners yeah. who can't see. And uh, and they're useful to me, but um, but yeah, I've been using the hardback instead. It, yeah. It's worth the extra. It's worth the extra um, expense, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And you know, the the thing is, aesthetics actually do matter. We respond well uh, when things are functional and beautiful, and that's that's something that uh, that we need to keep in mind. Alexander Solzhenitsyn always used to say that uh, you always pay dearly for things that are cheap. Yep. You know, when I, uh, this is a little aside, our listeners have heard me talk about my time selling guitars with a major uh, musical instrument retailer. And uh, when I first started, I didn't think anything about aesthetics for guitars. And how foolish is that just on the face of it? Because what I learned very quickly is that if a, especially a young student, but even some of the older guys who were getting into the into the instrument just uh, at the ground level, if they bought a guitar and they weren't necessarily thrilled with how it looked, what are they likely to do? They're likely to hide it away in their closet when they're not playing it. But if they buy a guitar that they really think is beautiful, they'll put it out on a guitar stand in their office or their study or their classroom or whatever. And if they do that, you know, how much more likely are they to pick it up off the stand and play it? And if they play right. it more, they're going to get better at guitar. And if they get better at guitar, it's going to be more fruitful for them. And then me as a sales guy, I get to sell them more guitars when they come back to me. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so I, I would my, emphasize See that. my guitar over there in the corner? Yes, that's a very nice guitar. It's a guild. <laughs> I love that guitar. Uh, the, um, there's a great song by uh, David Wilcox called Guitar Shopping. That, uh, <laughs> I'll have to look that up. Yeah, you, you need to you need to find the David Wilcox guitar shopping. Yeah, I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> All right, so we can go to georgegrant.net for more information and to order the books. Obviously, uh, I'm, George isn't saying this, but I will. If you are earnestly interested in getting the books, uh, go to georgegrant.net and get them from there. Don't buy from Amazon. Buy directly from George, I think, uh, or from Standfast Books, I should say, because if yeah, you do that, I don't that, think that better. the hardbacks are even available on Amazon. I think yeah, it's I just think the right. paperbacks. I think you're right. Yeah. So, and there are bulk, you, you can, you know, there are bulk prices for those who want to use it for a class. Uh, so I, I know a, a homeschool co-op uh, in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, that uh, is uh, using the, the Keystones as a part of their uh, regular um, 
fellowship together. And uh, there are uh, missionaries that are using this uh, out in the mission field. Uh, and so they're, they're buying these in bulk. So just getting that little price break is always very helpful. George, I think, I think you've given us a lot of great information and encouragement, not only about this particular product, this book, this methodology, but also about Chalmers and, and the warmth that you feel when, uh, when you think on his influence and legacy and, and also an appreciation for practical retrieval. You know, right now that's a buzzword, retrieval, in terms of theology and ways of doing theology and classical theism and all other things I've talked about on the podcast. But this, this is, this is an interesting instance of, of religious retrieval or theological retrieval in that it's retrieving a Bible study method that has, that has been suffused with the gospel uh, in recent years by comparison to the broad stretch of, uh, of church history anyway. And I think that that's a valuable uh, and interesting project in and of itself. Do you have any additional thoughts to share with our listeners before we conclude? Well, the first, I, I have been a friend of Greenville Theological Seminary from the earliest days and have been so deeply influenced by so many of the men who have taught uh, at, at Greenville. Uh, Joey Piper has been a friend of mine for almost 40 years, and uh, we knew each other when we were both pastoring in Houston, Texas, before he ever went to California. Uh, before he ever came to uh, to Greenville. And uh, so I, I just want to say th thank you for uh, making the message of, of Greenville uh, and its legacy of raising up a whole new generation of faithful reformers so accessible. I think uh, what you've done, Zach, has, uh, has been able to magnify uh, Dr. Piper's uh, vision and and now as we transition to a whole new era at Greenville, I think that uh, the foundations that have been laid are um, sufficient to carry the weight of a great and glorious future. Well, that is very kind of you, George, and I, I greatly appreciate the encouragement. Thank you, brother. Bless you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.